subject is the uh, larger, I mean, the shorter catechism, question 12. And our scripture related to that, it will be from Genesis 1, 26 through 2, 25. So we'll begin as we have been by reviewing a little bit. Um, in our sermon series, we've been looking at God's decree now for several weeks. His decrees are his eternal purpose according to his eternal plan. With question eight, we saw that God executes his decrees by the works of creation and providence. So first, he made everything. That's his work of creation. And since then, he governs all of those things that he made and preserves all those things. That's his providence. Last week, we took up question 11, where it begins, the catechism begins to deal with God's works of providence and does that for some time. Let's then begin our review. We're only going to do a short review this time with uh, reciting this question, question 11. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. We looked at both we look both at God's work of preservation and governing these two aspects to providence and one of the aspects of his government that I noted, I noted a number of things in, in both of those in uh, preservation and governing, but one aspect of his government that I noted in particular was how God sets up or establishes the relationship that he has with us by making covenants with us. We saw that there are two basic covenants that God has established with us from the beginning. The covenant of life, also called the covenant of works, was the covenant that he established with Adam and all of his posterity in the garden, right at creation. And the covenant of grace, which God established with Christ and with all the elect as his seed after the fall, was uh, established with those who are appointed to salvation. The covenant of works was with everyone, Adam and all his posterity, covenant of life. And then the covenant of, um, of grace was established with the elect, particularly. Um, the shorter catechism is structured around these two covenants. Question 12, which we're looking at today, speaks of the covenant of life which God made with man at creation. And then when we get to question 20, it will look at that other general covenant, the, the covenant of grace which God made with his people, with Christ and elect, his elect after the fall. So if you glance over the questions in your catechism, you can see that the covenant of life that is introduced by question 12 is the subject of questions 13 through 19 as well. So question 12 introduces the covenant and then questions 13 through 19 give us more details and tell us how we got on in the covenant of life, which of course wasn't very well. We fell and so on. Uh, and if you look at the questions that follow question 20, 
where the covenant of grace is introduced, you can see that this covenant is a subject, questions 31 all the way through 38. In some ways, you could even say after that. So understand then that question 12, which we're looking at today, is an introduction to a whole section on the covenant of life or the covenant of works that will continue until question 19. So now, let's recite, confess together uh, question 12. Question 12 says, What special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the estate wherein he was created? When God had created man, he entered into covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. The scripture that most fully describes the relationship that God established with us at creation is found particularly in Genesis 2 and goes back a little bit into chapter 1. So I've selected Genesis 1.26 through 2.25 for our scripture reading. I mentioned to you that it's just um, a coincidence brought about in God's providence that we're having an overlapping of scripture reading today in Genesis. Please give careful attention as I read this to you because this is the word of God. Genesis 1.26 Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over everything that lives, or or every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden east of Eden 
and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Edom to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Medillium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second is Gion. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hittichel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam was there, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in, in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy and infallible word. Just think what it must have been like for Adam at creation. He must have looked around at everything with wonder and amazement. He must have looked at his hands and at the amazing dexterity and how he could bend his fingers and how many ways he could move them, how he could grip things, how he could feel things. He must have looked at his arms and legs and how they could bend and how they could move him about. And he must have taken a deep breath and felt the air coming in and and going out and noted how he could smell. Truly, he was fearfully And wonderfully made by a master craftsman. He must have looked upon all the trees. Seen the texture of the bark and the variety of the leaves. The shade that they cast. The fruits that he was able to taste. What must it have been like to to taste an, an orange or to taste a blueberry for the first time? We are told specifically that God gave him all the herbs and the fruit of the trees for food. He saw all the flowers with their beautiful adornment and their smells. How he must have thanked God for all of these things. 
Then there were the rivers, the streams, and the still waters. Imagine running your hands through the water when you'd never done it before, taking a refreshing drink, perhaps gazing at his own face reflected in the water, and then watching the water in a stream weaving its way through the rocks and coming over the little catapults where it fell. And then he looked up into the heavens and saw the sky and the, and the clouds and the, and the brilliant sun there. How delightful this must have been. How full of praise Adam must have been. We're told that he also looked upon the animals and even that he named them as they all passed before him. Before the fall, they were not hostile. He must have put his hands through the lion's mane, petted the dogs, admired the huge dinosaurs with their, with their great strength, looked at the beautiful and delicate butterfly, and taken in the sound of the birds as he saw them flying overhead and, and, and heard them sing. He must have admired his creator and said, In wisdom you have made them all, as he looked at each one and gave them, its, gave them their names. The most wonderful thing of all for Adam was when the Lord caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep and fashioned the woman from his rib. This was something special, something different. Adam woke up from that sleep, and there she was, a beautiful companion for him, a woman who was like him, yet different. As soon as the Lord presented her to Adam, he began to speak the first poem, at least the first of which we have record. Genesis 2.23, Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That was so special because the other animals were not like him. But here was one that was made of the same substance. Think of what pleasure it must have given him to show her around the garden and to speak with her of all the things that God had made. Now he had a companion that he could converse with. Here was someone that from the very beginning was endowed like he was with language. Someone who knew God and could enjoy the glorious God together with Adam. Here was someone that he could touch and look upon someone that he could love, someone that was like him and yet also different. At some point along the way, Adam must have thought, what will my life be like here? I remember when I first left home and went to university, I drove up to the place where I was appointed to live on the campus. It was unusual student housing. It was... um, very uh, rustic places that had been for married students from years before. They were uh, very, very well worn. And there's a little neighborhood of these houses, and they put some of us students in them because they didn't have enough of the regular residences. So first-year students, some of us got in there. We liked it quite well because we had a little neighborhood that we could park right in front of our house, and we had uh, four guys living in each of these uh, in these places. I wondered what... My life would be like here, though. I met some of the other students and the people that I was going to be living with that I'd never met before. 
went down to the dining hall and ate there. I went to my classes, met my professors, and there was so much to take in. But it's nothing compared to how it was with Adam. But there I thought, what will my life be here? How wonderful and exciting it was. It was a new adventure. Just think, though, with Adam and Eve, how would life be for them? What would God do with them? What would he do for them? What would he want of them? How did he want them to live? We don't know how much they just knew. We know that they had, that they were created in a righteousness, in righteousness, so they knew right from wrong. But how, but how much did God directly tell them? And what did they just know? We know that there were things that he did directly tell them because we're told that he did. And that's the next thing I want to look at. God told them what the arrangements were for their life in this world. When I take a look at that, what did God tell them that their life was to be? Well, first, he gave them a great task to do. The task of filling the earth with people. Verses Genesis 1.28 Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Remember, this was before sin was in the world. So the original vision, the original call, was an earth that was filled with godly, righteous people who worship God and love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbor as themselves. A whole earth filled with people like that. This task was their life's work. It would take centuries. But once it was done, God would then move them on to whatever he had next. And the earth was full. Then they would be done with that. And God would move them on to the next phase of his plan for them. Notice how it says that God blessed them to do this work. His blessing gave them the ability to procreate new image bearers of God. They were able to bring forth children that were like them, but marvelously not like them, unique. By modern science, we have learned about DNA and how God made us wonderfully to be able to not bring forth those who are clones of us, but to bring forth those who are like us, very much people, and yet different. Different people with different features and different uh, different abilities and things. So it was a wonderful thing. Second, he gave them dominion over the whole earth and called them to subdue it. 128 as well. We're, we're told this in the second part of verse 128. I'll read the entire verse to you, though, part I read before as well. Genesis 1.28, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Subduing the earth means that they were to bring it into service to themselves. They were given all of its resources for this, to be used in serving each other, for building things, for crafting things, for making music, for cooking food, 
all the things that we do. Indeed, they would need to subdue it as well if they were going to fill the earth with people. They would have to have gardens and things to support the population and to provide for for people all over the world when the earth was filled. And here again was God's blessing. He made them masters over it all. He gave them dominion over all the animals so that they could put them into service as well. Animals have are a tremendous resource for companionship, for farming, for many other things. Even after the fall they are they are, but how much more before the fall when they could easily be trained and when they were not hostile and all sorts of abilities that they have that that they would have been able to uh, function together. It was a, a very wonderful situation. And third, God gave them the Sabbath. This is one of the most important things because it is here that he really shows much of their relationship to himself. Genesis 2, verse 2 and 3, after he had made everything. Here, here we see the essence of their relationship to him as worshipers who are also the recipients of his grace in the sense of his help. Not grace as sinners at this time, but grace as needy people who rely upon God to enable them to do what he's called them to do. Look at what God declares concerning the seventh day. Genesis 2.2 And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day, and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which he had created and made. This is something that God did for for man, a day that was set apart. God didn't set the day apart for its own sake. Days don't have any feelings or sense of things. When God blesses a day and makes it holy, it means it's holy to us, and it's blessed for us, that we might receive blessing, and that we might acknowledge him. So, uh, you, you see that uh, where it says uh, that he took six days to make the world, he decreed here that every seventh day they were to cease from their regular activities, to put all those regular activities aside and devote the day to him. You see that? It says that he sanctified the day. So that means that he made it holy. A holy thing is a thing that is devoted entirely to the worship of God. A holy day is a day set apart to his worship. If you have a holy vessel in the temple, then they weren't supposed to use those vessels for cooking their meals in or something. It was to be devoted to the use for God. They even had incense that was of a special formula that was only to be used as a holy incense in connection with the sacrifices. If it was used for ordinary things, then they would be guilty before God. On the seventh day, then, they were to put aside all their regular activities, which uh, all were to be for God, too. They were all to the glory of God. But in a special way, they were to present themselves to God and look to him. It was to be his day when they worshipped him and gave thanks to him as their creator, provider, guide, and constant helper. And when they looked to him, especially for grace. It's like when you have an appointment with someone that you you go over to see them and to review the work that you're doing. Maybe someone you're working for and once a month maybe they have a time when you go and you meet with them. They give you instruction and counsel and 
give you some uh, guidance about things and review what you've done and uh, maybe they pay you then, whatever, you know, th- that sort of thing. When it says that he blessed this day, that means that he made this day then to be a special blessing for them. It would be a day when he would show his glory to them and when he would direct them in his ways, when he would strengthen them to go on in their work because they needed that kind of grace from God. They needed to, we were made to rely on God. Never were we, even before the fall, we, we were creatures and we needed to receive from his hand. They were dependent on him to do the work that he'd given them to do. And on the Sabbath day, they would especially obtain that grace and enablement. What a splendid day then this is each week. They would see his glory and would worship him and they would thank him and they would be blessed by him to go on in his service. It was, as now, the market day of the soul when we do business with God. Fourth, he gave them a garden that he planted. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. The language used gives the impression that this was a cultivated garden. It was that God, it says that God planted it and put Adam in it to tend it. Look at Genesis 2.8. The Lord God planted a garden east of Eden and there he put the man whom he had formed. It seems that God gave Adam a garden where the ground was already turned and things were already growing. And, and why wouldn't he do that? Um he wanted to start him out. He didn't start out with just a bare field. He started out with things that he could use from the very beginning. At least it appears that uh, it's something like that. We're told that God also caused all the trees, including fruit trees, to grow here. Again, it's not saplings that he had to wait for several years for them to grow up and start bearing uh, apples and oranges and Uh, whatever else, but trees that were already bearing fruit. Genesis 2.9 says, And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice here that these two notable trees are mentioned that were in the garden. have more to say about those trees in just a moment. Fifth, he gave them marriage. 2.24 Now we've already considered how God made the woman and presented her to Adam and how wonderful it was for Adam to have her and for her to have him. But God gave them instruction about this. After Adam's poem where God said, I mean, where Adam said that she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So right here at the beginning, God instituted marriage by which the man and the woman became one flesh, a single entity rather than two separate persons, what we looked at this morning. Two people that functioned together, not only to bring forth children, but also to bring up those children and to live in the world in their service to God and to others. So in all this, you see the life that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. He was beginning to learn the answer to that question, what will my life be like here? He, he gave them, him, God gave them himself. You see that all the blessings and the duties that made up their life, 
But you see also that God gave himself to them to bless them and guide them so that they could live in the world with God's enablement and help. It was a wonderful, wonderful arrangement. But God not only gave them this arrangement with these blessings, he also made a covenant to regulate and clarify their life here, their relationship with him in living this life into which he had placed them. A covenant is a bond that has promises and penalties. When two equals make a covenant, they draw up terms and then they solemnly vow before God with sanctions or penalties that they will do what they have promised. When God makes a covenant, he sets the terms and the stipulations and the sanctions of the covenant because he's sovereign and he has all authority. He doesn't negotiate with us. He tells us what the covenant is and what all of its terms are. So this first covenant that God made with man is called the covenant of life. In this covenant, life would be established by Adam continuing in the life that God had given to him. The tree of life was given to assure Adam of God's ongoing provision and blessing. As Adam and his posterity did the work of filling the earth with worshipers and servants of God. A world filled with people who are filled with this life that God had given to Adam would be the result the tree of life. At some point, God would confirm Adam with committed, would confirm that Adam was committed to continuing in this life and would confirm him in this life. And once the task of filling the earth was done, as mentioned before, God would presumably give them a new arrangement of service to him so that life with God would continue, but no more children would be added because the earth would be full. But God also tells Adam in this covenant of life that life would be terminated if Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. The sanction of the covenant. This was a a stipulation. This sanction is given in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you for in for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now understand the name of this tree, as it's sometimes thought, does not indicate that Adam and Eve did not know the difference between right and wrong. They clearly knew that. They were made moral beings in righteousness. The idea is that by eating Adam would put himself in the place of God as the one who would decide for himself what was good and what was evil. After he and Eve ate, God says in 3.22, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. That's what Satan told him would happen as well. Satan told the truth about that, that you be like God, knowing good and evil, God says, Behold, the man has become like us to know good and evil. So he has now, the man has now put himself in the place of God by that action. 
But if he did that, of course, at this point, it's a warning. A place that will bring him into great ruin. A place of sin and selfishness and of exile and isolation from God. The warning was that by eating, Adam would remove himself from the life that God had given him in the garden. That he would surely die. Adam would become one who is dead in his transgressions, in his trespasses and sins. He would cut himself off from the service and worship of his creator, as well as from the blessing and help of his creator. To summarize, in the covenant of life, God says to Adam, See, I have given you life here. Continue with me in this arrangement, and you will live and prosper. I will bless you and guide you and enable you to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth and to fill it. I have given you the tree of life as a pledge that I will establish you in a life of blessing forever if you continue with me as your God. But if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. By this action, you will sever yourself from me and from this life that I have given you. It will be a declaration of independence of you from me. And in the day you eat it, you will surely die. So that's the covenant of life that God made with man in the beginning. But of course, we know that Adam did not continue in the covenant of life. He ate the forbidden fruit and died. Life, as God gave it to him, ended right then and there. He was severed from that blessed life and became dead in trespasses and sins. So what does this covenant of life have to do with us now? We need to see that although we cannot obtain life by this covenant, we have already given up that opportunity. By Adam's eating, we have declared our independence from God. But still, we learn from this original, this first covenant, because it explains what we are as people. God did not create us in sin or in a ruined, fallen world. You need to know that. Can't blame God for our sin. We corrupted ourselves. He created us upright and noble. We were made to live as those who worship God and gave thanks to Him and as those who are meant to live and serve by His blessing and enablement. And we're the ones that turned from that blessing. Further, we know that after we fell, God in His grace came to us to call us to return to Him and has graciously made provision for us to do so. This is unexpected. You never think that after all of His grace and in the beginning and giving us all these blessings that He should then give us an opportunity to be restored. He has made it possible for us to return to Him for life, for eternal life. Only now the great work that He has given us to do is a restoring work. It is a work that God does by His Son and by His Spirit. Before, it was an adding work, adding of more righteous people like we were. Now it's a restoring work of restoring us and restoring others. As the second Adam, Christ, the Son of God, came in human flesh, not only to obey God, as Adam did not obey Him, continuing with God as his God, but much more to pay the penalty of our transgressions, 
to be punished for our rejection of God as our God by dying on the cross and to pay the penalty of all the other sins we have committed since that rejection. He is the one who restores us. By His Spirit, He shows us that we are dead in sin. He shows us how ruined we are. He brings us His Word to declare to us how Christ died to save us from our sin. And if we are appointed to salvation, He renews our hearts so that we believe and we come to Christ for forgiveness and for restoration of life with God. And now, by the provision of God through Christ and His Spirit, we are again enabled to fill the earth with godly people. Now there are two now there are two ways that we do this. Not just by bringing forth children. We do it by evangelism in which we call those in rebellion against God to return to him by coming to Jesus Christ for salvation. By coming and putting themselves in the care of Jesus for his forgiveness and grace that they might now return to God and serve God, be restored to him. That's the first way. We go out in the world and we call people into the kingdom of grace. The second thing is by bringing forth children, same as we had at the beginning. After we have come to Christ ourselves, we bring up our children that are given to us in the nurture and discipline of the Lord. We train them up in the Lord and by God's grace, they continue with life in the covenant. We are hindered in this great work of filling the earth with godly people, but Christ will accomplish it. There are three ways that we are hindered. By the presence of those who continue in rebellion against God. Obviously, as long as there are those who stand opposed to God, the earth cannot be filled with godly people. Second, we are hindered by our own remaining sin and corruption. Paul cried out, Who will deliver me from this body of death? He told us that the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, so we can't do the things that we want to do. As long as sin remains in us, the earth cannot be filled with godly people because we're not godly either. In a way, we are godly in that we have turned back to God and we're following him now by his grace, but we still have to be delivered from this remaining corruption. And then the third way that we're hindered is by suffering and death in this present world. Because of suffering, we're not able to enjoy the paradise that God has appointed for us. Not yet. And because of death, though we add to the church daily those who are being saved, we also bury each day those who are perishing from this world. Those of our own number that we bury in hope of the resurrection. So, There are these three things that hinder us, but Christ will overcome all of these things. He has already conquered sin and death and the curse by the cross. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, first one to rise from the dead, conquering death. And his promise is that at the last day, he he will raise up all who have come to him for salvation to live in a renewed earth. So that the curse and all of all that's related to it will be removed. We shall inherit the earth, we're told. We shall inherit it with Christ. He will also perfect us 
that we may live without sin. We will be delivered from this body of death. Moreover, in that day, he will judge all those who remained in rebellion against God, along with Satan, their leader. He will cast them into the place of outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, and they will be there forever. And third, by him, the earth will indeed then be filled with godly people. The original purpose of God will be accomplished. So we need to see that what God promised to Adam, a full earth of people having dominion over the earth, godly people filling the earth, God's still going to bring that about. He brings it about by grace through Jesus Christ in the covenant of grace, what we failed to do in the covenant of works. We're involved in this work now as we seek to see the kingdom of Christ established in the world. We need to say, it is good for us to go with God. When we reject him, as we did in the garden, all is ruined, all is sour. When we return to him through Christ, even in this present world, fallen as it is, and difficult as it is, we are restored to life. And we can say, by the grace of God, I will go forever with my faithful Savior. And when he has gathered into his kingdom enough people to fill the world, all those that he came to save, he will bring me and my brothers and sisters who have also trusted in him to the city of God, where we shall live forever with God and with his Son as our Lord and Master. What a wonderful future we have. We're still going to attain what God promised us from the beginning. Only now we have it by his grace. Please stand and let's give thanks to him and ask for his help. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the wonderful relationship that you established with us when you first created us. Your goodness was truly evident in that covenant that you made. It was a covenant where there was provision of all that we needed. There was a promise of life, a promise of blessing to be able to fill the earth as you'd called us to do and to subdue it, to be able to make use of all things for this purpose of filling the earth with godly people. Lord, what a beautiful, wonderful world it was to be. Father, we know that it's because of our sin, Lord, that, that things were hindered, that things were suspended, that we died, and that we were cast out. But we thank you that in your marvelous grace that you came with restoring mercy to bring us back. And we thank you that through Jesus Christ that we have hope now of eternal life all over again. We thank you that he has conquered sin and death and that he leads us to victory and that we shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. And we pray, Lord, that we would not be the proud and independent like Adam became when he fell, but, Father, that we would be the meek and the lowly who humble ourselves and tremble at your word and who come to your promises with gladness and thanksgiving to receive from you the life and the forgiveness that we need. 
We thank you, O Lord, that these things are sure to us, that they are promised in our Lord Jesus Christ. May we find them and be refreshed in them each day. And may we, especially on the Lord's day, come and and learn of these graces, hear of them and praise you for them. And may we honor you, Lord, and may we receive the grace and help that we need each Lord's day, as well as on the other days that we may be able to continue in that covenant and that we may be able to receive the blessings that are promised in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd be in big trouble if God were to mark iniquities, if he were to judge us by that first covenant alone, we would be forever condemned and without hope. But because there is forgiveness with him, then we can come back to God and fear him as his people. We can live before him as our God and serve him. To fear God means to live before him as our God, realizing that everything we have, all blessing, all life comes from him. And so now receive his blessing and his life-giving blessing from the Lord our God. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.